One thing that Jesus would have done is he, he would have spent time with the marginalized. He would have stood up for them. And so one would think that Jesus' church would often take the same approach, right? That we would see everyone as broken, everyone as needing a Savior, everyone as deserving compassion because Jesus shed compassion on all. And unfortunately, the church has often looked more like the Pharisees than Jesus. And we've skewed the nature of the problem of sexuality in order to hold a position of spiritual moral policing in the world. We've got it wrong. I mean, you, just, you don't have to look at the headlines too long before you get this impression because I mean, Christian leaders are the ones who go on TV and say things like 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina were the result of God's judgment on gay people. Now, I know I've given an extreme, extreme case, and you're probably like, I'm not that guy. I'm not that woman. I, like, I, I'm not homophobic like those people that go on and, and claim these things. But I would ask you to look a little bit more at the research. See, what Barna showed when they, when they did a poll of Christians to see what some of our biases were towards the gay community, this is what they found. And it's more shocking than I realized. I wept when I heard these things. It said that four out of five evangelical Christians say that homosexual relations between two adults should be illegal. Outside, inside, right? You determine what happens outside, it leads people to be good on the inside. Is that more like Jesus or Pharisaical? Two out of five churchgoers say that school boards ought to be able to fire teachers simply for being gay. Two out of five. Two out of five born-again Christians admitted more sympathy for people with cancer than with HIV-AIDS. Do you want to know why the number one reason for that, uh, that, that sympathy towards cancer patients was over AIDS patients? Because the, the predominant reason given was that AIDS was likely a punishment from God for homosexual activity. Two out of five. So what the research shows is that we really do believe that some sins are worse than others. We really do believe that your outside determines your inside, that some people are closer to God because of their sexual behavior. See, the only people that Jesus condemned, or the only ones that he considered far from God, were those who used their own goodness as a measuring stick for their justification. Those who thought that their outside looked clean enough so that God would accept them on the inside. Those were the people that Jesus said, you guys are far from God. It was those who looked messy on the outside that Jesus said were the ones that were near to the kingdom of God. And one time, the, the, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they go, hey, why is it that you eat with all these messed up people that don't like, look like they're close to God? These sinners and tax collectors, you spend all your time with them. And Jesus' response was this. He said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, it's those who understand their own moral bankruptcy that He's come to call. Because they're the ones who welcome Jesus and His work on their behalf with open arms. And the church, if we're following Jesus, is called to testify to the good news about what Jesus has done. 
about how He has not held our sins against us, but He welcomes people to His table that don't deserve to be there. He calls us to display this good news by the way that we live. And you know what the best way is to undermine that testimony and that calling in the world? Act as the moral police in your home, in your neighborhood, in your job, wherever. Call people out for their morality every single time. But what you'll find is that you'll repel people like the Pharisees did rather than gather those as Jesus did. See, in your zeal for morality, we need to ask ourselves, if no one who would have considered Jesus a friend in the first century wants to be anywhere near me, am I really following Jesus? Or am I following someone else? I think it's a question that we have to consider. Secondly, those who condemn use a higher standard for others to excuse themselves. It's one of the things we see over and over from the Pharisees. Look at the way that Jesus responds to their insistence that He join them in condemning the woman. It says, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with His finger. And when they kept on questioning Him, He straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. And again, He stooped down to write on the ground. So what does Jesus do in the middle of their accusation? He starts writing in the sand. I mean, is he bored with the conversation? Like, what is going on here? Now, I realize that this may be kind of a meaningless detail, um, but I, I came across more than a few commentators who said that what Jesus is likely doing is writing out some of their sins on the ground for them to see to demonstrate that none of them are innocent. So put yourself in the place of one of these Pharisees, and you're standing here, you've brought this woman before Jesus, and you think, we got him. You know, I mean, he's got to come down on one side or the other. Either he's going to pardon her, and and so we'll be able to call him out as a lawbreaker, or he's going to have to execute punishment to her, in which case we'll be able to tell everybody, this guy that you think is so loving and generous and gracious is none of those things, because look at what he did to her. And then Jesus starts to write on the ground all the things that you've ever done. As if he's read your whole email account. <laughs> you think, man, th- this, this woman deserves it. I've I brought her t- here. And then he starts to undermine your case. Not by declaring her innocent, but by showing how guilty you are. And you start to go, man, I, I have no case here. See, he actually invites them to carry out the stoning, does he not? He says, go ahead. If you're without sin, be the first. Have at her. But he says that in order to be the first, you have to tell me that what I just wrote about you is not true. See, and Jesus is ma- he's masterfully pointing out here that if you're going to apply the law, they should do it with equal justice for themselves who also fall well short of perfection that it demands. And I wonder as the church if we really do that. See, one of the, the primary passages, passages that's pointed out when it comes to homosexual behavior is 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, and it's pretty hard language, but it says this, 
Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. Catch the you, right? See, we, as the church, we often give the list without implicating ourselves with it. And our culture, they, they look at this and they say, see, the, the Bible condemns homosexual behavior. How judgmental, how narrow-minded. And you're right. It does. Here and other places. But then in addition to that, Christians have used it as an opportunity to do terrible things and say terrible things to gay people. You want to know the truth, though? I'm going to lay all my cards on the table, okay? I've never had a homosexual thought or passion or action in my life. But I'm guilty of at least six of the things on this list. And I'm a pastor. I don't know if you realize that. They don't just let anybody come up here. (laughs) We do in our church, but... I'm just saying. Six that I can count as being wicked and condemnable. I know what I am apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. I have no excuse to stand before a holy God and say to Him, I can be accepted apart from the grace of God that comes in Jesus Christ. I cannot do it. I have no ability to stand on my own righteousness. I've been pardoned because of the blood of Christ. And see, we misframe the problem when we forget ourselves in the midst of it. You see, the problem isn't with homosexuality. The problem is with human brokenness, which manifests itself in all kinds of ways, but particularly in our sexuality. And we end up using it for gratification rather than the gift that it was given to us to enjoy by a good God. And I've misused it too. And so I'm, I stand alongside everyone else that, that is implicated by this list and I say, I have no hope apart from Christ. What that means is when you, when you start examining your own life and realize how Fall, how, how far from the grace of God you fall. That it's only because of Jesus's un, or God's unmerited favor to you that you have any hope to stand before a holy God. That the only moral standard is Jesus who is perfect in every way. That He is the only one who always does what is good, right, and perfect. And that I am not Him. You come to a couple conclusions. You realize a couple things. And the first is that because of Jesus... There is no condemnation for me before God. That's what Romans 8 says. And that should be the best news when you realize that God knows everything that you've ever done and yet still sent His Son for you. You should, I mean, you should break down and weep that God would pardon you to such a degree. It's not as if He doesn't know you. He knows everything about you far better than you do, and yet He still sent His Son for you. That's the best news there is. But then the the second realization is this, is that if I'm not condemned, though evil, how in the world can I condemn someone who's equally as guilty as I am? 
I can't. I have no basis to do that. See, when you understand the Gospel, then you'll look at others and know that there's no way to claim any moral high ground. We as the church should be the first to acknowledge that. That the only thing left could be a heavy dose of humility and an offer of grace to those who fall short like we do. Third is this. That we see those who condemn forget who has the authority to really judge. So if we don't have the authority to judge, does that mean that Jesus does not have the authority to judge either? But what we see is that He is the judge and so He does reserve the right to wield His authority to judge. So the question is, what does He do with that authority? See, when the Pharisees present the woman before Jesus, they call Him teacher, right? They say, teacher, what do you say? They're ascribing Him authority, but it's, it's not the right kind of authority, actually. Because what they're saying is, look, as a fellow teacher of God's Word, you have the authority to apply the judgment that God's Word calls for. That's what they're saying, right? We have that judgment too. We just want to make sure that you're going to wield that judgment correctly. Are you going to apply the law the way that you should? Because that's what the law calls for. As a, as a teacher, you have the ability to do that. But they're forgetting something about Jesus. He isn't just a good moral teacher. Right? He, he isn't just a teacher of the Word of God. He is what? He is the Word of God. And so he doesn't just have the ability, the, the authority to enforce the Word. He has the authority to declare it. He has the, the ability to say, guilty, not guilty. Right, wrong. Good, bad. He reserves the right to do that because He is the one through whom all things are created. And so what does He do with that authority? Well, before I get to that, at the same time, you have to realize He is the only one who actually meets the criteria for being able to throw the first stone. Right? He's the only one who always does what is good, right, and perfect. If anyone can pick up a throne... A stone and, and chuck it at her, it's him. The Bible says that he is both the one who wrote the law and the one who accomplishes it. Hebrews 12 says he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so if we're going to take our cue from anyone, it's got to be Jesus. And we have to ask the question, what does he do with his authority? He uses it to associate himself with the one who's condemned. He associates himself with it. It says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, he declared. The, The Pharisees were quick to condemn someone that God had a plan to use as an example of his grace. And I wonder, church, how often we do that. How often we're quick to do the same thing. And we meet somebody and we think, man, maybe God has an intention for them. Maybe He's brought me into their life to be an instrument of His grace, to declare to them who Jesus is, to live it out before them so that they would know the love of God that's in Christ. 
And then we find something out about their background, or particularly we find out that they're gay, and we go, well, I guess it's hands off. And so we stop praying for them. We stop making time for them. We stop being a friend to them. We cut them off. I don't know about your story, but with my story, it took my roommate three years of intentional relationship building before I finally saw the love of Christ that was in him. He would go to parties with me and abstain from alcohol just to be able to walk home with me so that I would know that God was with me wherever I went, even to those places. He was willing to walk with me through life, regardless of the way that I treated him, regardless of the the things that I said or the actions that I did. He didn't walk away. I think, what a picture of God, right? I mean, what what better way to, to display that God loves us and cares for us and walks through us with life in long-suffering ways. Do we do that? Are we the ones who, who are, are the first to go to our friends and, and to spend time with them and to continually remind them of the love of God, even in the midst of their sin? Or are we too busy looking religious and moral to be able to associate ourselves with people of low repute? I felt that tension myself. But notice how Jesus doesn't just associate himself with her. He actually changes her identity. At the very beginning of the passage, do you remember what they called her? What was her title? Yeah, it was the woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. I mean, imagine wearing that placard around everywhere you go. Right? What does he call her at the end? Woman. He starts out by saying uh, her identity has been the product of what she has done and her actions are condemning her before the law. By the end of the story, none of the, none of the qualifiers are there anymore, right? It's simply woman. Now, that may sound derogatory to us, and if I stood up here and called Mandy my woman all the women in the room would immediately turn off their ears and, uh, and, and kind of nod and not listen to anything I had to say from here on out. But in that, in that day and age, the term woman had, had inherent dignity to it because you're seeing her for who God made her to be. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I, I don't see all the other stuff. You're... you're I don't condemn you for any of those things. I'm looking through all of the dirt, all of the stuff that's piled itself onto you, and I'm seeing underneath it all the image bearer of God. I'm seeing the one who God created to be as a woman, made in his own image. I wonder if we're being honest, if we tend to label people for their actions, whether they be gay or straight rather than see them as image bearers of our glorious God, which they carry around everywhere they go, and call out to them that image-bearing nature that's within them, calling it to the surface as Jesus did, and saying, no, 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 you're not those things. Here's who you are. Here's who God's made you to be. Here's who he sent his son to redeem you to be. Do you see it? I wonder if we do that.
or if we tend to see people for the labels that we ourselves have put on them or our culture has done. Now, it's at this point that uh, the Christians in the room get really uncomfortable with this talk of love and acceptance and grace um, because we're getting towards the end of the story and I haven't mentioned the most important part when it comes to Christians. And they say something like, yes, 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 all this love and grace, they accept, he accepted her, he loved her, he, he pardoned her and all that, but, but he calls her to change. Don't miss that part. Don't forget that point, right? I would say there's a reason this comes at the end of the story. See, often in life we expect people to change and then once they change we say, great, you've earned the grace of God. And that's never the way that Jesus orders things. He always says, apart from what you've done, you have not earned the grace of God and yet you have it freely. And now in the grace of God, I'm inviting you to live a different life. And this is, this is one of the most important things because... It, and, and just to be honest, in our culture, it's the most controversial, particularly in the way that I've framed the story, right? Because the tendency at this point is to say, okay, Jesus loves everybody, and therefore we should never expect anyone to change, especially those who are in a gay lifestyle. I mean, that's taboo, right? But look at the last thing that the story teaches. It says this. This is the way that we'll frame it. Those who condemn they miss out on God's power to transform those who need grace. They miss out on it. See, the Pharisees, where are they at the end of the story? Yeah, they're, they're, they're out plotting their next attempt to condemn Jesus. Right? They're not in the story anymore, and so they miss out on one of the most glorious pieces of the story. And they assume probably that Jesus... And this whole story it ends with the, the lack of condemnation. Well, there they go. She's going to go back to her life of sin, and Jesus is going to go back to loving people, and nothing ever changes. And see, this is why we hold to our morality. But don't miss this. Because Jesus says this, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. So what Jesus is saying is, since I took the penalty for you, you needn't be defined by this any longer. So in forgiveness, you don't have to hold on to it anymore. You you can leave behind the things that once defined who you were. And you can latch on to a new reality where, where your power is no longer the only power that's at work here. And so this is what the reaction would tend to be at this point. Okay, okay. It, it is one thing to say that of an adulterous woman. I mean, she can change. But you can't just go around and say that about somebody who's gay. I mean, that's, I mean it's more complex than that, right? And the truth is, it's very complex. I'm not undermining its complexity. But the Bible does teach over and over that when you come to know Jesus, your sins, who you were before, does not keep you from receiving His grace. But it also teaches that when you come to know Jesus, when He really gets into the recesses of your heart, everything does change. Everything about you changes. 
Another way to say it would be this, is that people who are radically affected by Jesus should expect to be radically changed by him. Um, We'll go back to the 1 Corinthians passage because it says this, neither sexually immoral, it goes through the whole list again, nor uh, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this. Last time I highlighted the fact that, and this is what some of you were. But look at what it says. This is what some of you were. See, because we've been so conditioned by our culture, we look at every other type of person on that list. We look at idolaters and adulterers and prostitutes and thieves and greedy people and drunkards, all the, the whole deal. And we say, how wonderful. They found Jesus and they got healed. Isn't that great? But then we see homosexuality on the list and we say, how cruel. Doesn't God know the latest research which says that same-sex attraction is a fixed condition? I mean, hasn't he read the journals? See, to to say that, our culture says, is is to be homophobic. You can't say that gay people can change. That is off limits. But what does Paul actually say? What does he actually say? He doesn't say that gay people chose to be that way as often the church has. He doesn't say that those people are excluded from God's grace. He doesn't say any of those things at all. He simply says some of you were homosexual. But that no longer defines you. Like I said, this is a complex issue, and we're we're just not going to touch on everything that you'd need to touch on today in order to really talk about what the Bible says. But many have tried to simplify this into saying that people with same-sex attraction must either be accepted as they are without any hope of change at all, or there is absolutely no place for them within the body of Christ. But Paul highlights a simple, verifiable, historical fact. That there there have been gay people who come to know the grace of God in Jesus And with time and with the Holy Spirit's power at work in their life, they find change. In other words, their their sexual identity is no longer the single identifying mark of their life. The single identifying mark of their life is now Jesus and what He has done for them. And that's why Paul is able to say, some of you were. And then he goes on to say, and here's the, 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 the real thing we look at the rest of the list and we go, well, it's easy for the rest of the people to change. It's harder for this to change. And what we're essentially doing is saying, you you need to come to the grace of God because of the power of God. But once you've experienced the power of God to forgive you, your change is on yourself. It's your endeavor. You need to do it yourself. And so work really hard at it. And put your hand to it because it's all up to you. But that's not what Paul says. He sa- Look at what he says. He says, but you were washed. He didn't say you washed yourself. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by who? The Spirit of God. 
See, we Christians, we love to take credit for our own change project. We love to say, yeah, it was all about Jesus, but then once I came to know Jesus, gosh, I've been working really hard at this thing, and look at all the progress I've made. Biblically, you have no case to, to, to say any of those things. You realize that. Every change that you've experienced in your life has been the product of the Spirit of God getting hold of your heart and rearranging it from the inside out whether you wanted it to happen or not. It's been the Spirit of God in you that has done that. And so don't discount the Spirit's work to be able to make changes that our culture says cannot happen. Why would we do that as Christians? See, it it doesn't matter if you're gay or straight. When you come to Jesus and He becomes the most important thing in your world, then you begin to experience real change. Not because you're a good person, but because the living God puts His power in you and begins to live His life out through you. And I I know I'm standing before a, a whole bunch of people that have experienced radical change in their lives. And I'm so thankful for that that I get the opportunity to see that work happen in you all the time. Don't don't misplace where it came from and don't say back to God, well, yeah, you did it in my life, but there's no way you could change this group of people. He's not going to require them to change apart from the grace He's going to give them. Don't mishear me. See, most people's impression is that in order to become a Christian, you need to clean yourself up first. You need to act in accordance with the truth of the Bible, and then only after you've proven yourself, God will accept you and you'll be His. And unfortunately, the church has been the primary guilty party in giving the world this impression. But when that's your understanding, there seems to be absolutely no room for someone who has homosexual passions or actions. And that's part of the reason why we have been such a condemning group when it comes to people that have gone through this. But that is not Christianity. It is not. So have I I been provocative this morning? Um... I really do feel like God is uh, calling us to live differently. I hope you feel the weight of that. Um, and I, I just I f- feel the Spirit prompting me to say this. If this is like really tweaked you for any reason and you're like, I, we need to talk about this more, then please do that. Um, again, I feel like I'm, I'm opening Pandora's box and I'm just letting it hang out there. Um, but... I really do want us as the church to live radically like Jesus does. To expect uh, radical change of ourselves, radical change of those who God gets a hold of by His grace, but also to radically extend that grace to any and everyone who would, who would be interested in the grace of God that comes in Christ. And so I'm calling us to live differently. Yes, we, we have shown that as the church we can be a judgmental, intolerant group of people. And so we need to repent of that. 
Um, but I also think if we are serious about following Jesus, we'll display something totally different to the world in the way that we live. And we need God to do it. And so I hope that you pray with me that he would. So let's ask him to come and to do that. Father, we know that um, this issue is a complex one. There's a lot of uh, cultural barriers to this. There's a lot of scientific um, avenues to this discussion. A lot of people differing uh, opinions on this uh, issue. And I pray that this morning, God, that we wouldn't simplify it too much to the point where we just say, I know what to do in every circumstance, but that we would look to faithfully be your people who offer and extend grace because we've experienced and received grace. Lord, I pray that you'd remind us that it wasn't our performance, it wasn't our orientation sexually that put us into a place where we could accept the grace of God. We were living apart from you, we were far from you, and you came and you got us. And so I pray, Lord, that we would have that same posture towards others. Help us to do that in a way that's authentic and not condemning, that's grace-giving and life-giving to those that need grace and life from you. I pray that we wouldn't limit your power, the Holy Spirit, that you'd come and you'd fill us to be this people, and that we'd see real change happen, both for us and for those who have yet to come to know you. We pray in Christ. Amen.